Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And this is episode 107. 107. So there's some really interesting things happening uh, kind of legislatively. The first is it looks like this kook that uh, sleepy Joe Biden put up to be head of the ATF that even the Democrats don't seem to have any enthusiasm for this guy. He's he's a wacko. You ever seen a picture of this guy? He just looks odd. He he looks like kind of an unbalanced person. So um, I don't know, you know. And and he's worked for every gun control group out there, I suppose. And and uh, you know, it's a very very poor choice to be head of the ATF, who should be. You know, somebody who's just kind of a career bureaucrat, I would think. So it appears that that's that's dead. They'll probably just go with the acting director for a while and then slip in someone else later on. We'll we'll see what happens. But uh, it looks like that's that's pretty much goner. The next thing is it looks like (laughs) their their signature achievement, which is going after um, pistol braces. It looks like that's failing also. Apparently there was a letter signed by 48 Republican senators, which is amazing they could get that many, who said, hey, this is a bad piece of government policy because these things are in common use. They're not creating a problem. And they've been in common use for years. So, you know, why regulate them now? Why overburden the uh, NFA with these things? So... It, it looks like that's and, and frankly I don't think that race thing is going to stand up in court I mean um, I just don't see it I just don't see it so I, I think that's failing the other anti-crime initiatives of going after bad gun dealers that uh, that's not going to work either because there really aren't any I mean there really aren't any um, they all have to be in compliance with the ATF you know that's one of those things that sounds good on the surface Oh, they're bad gun dealers, and we're going to go after them. But the fact of the matter is, the government regulates them so closely that uh, if there are bad gun dealers, it's because the government is doing a poor job. Which they do do a poor job in a lot of things, but that's not one of them. They do regulate uh, firearms dealers really heavily. So, um, <clears throat> and they inspect them. They do all these sorts of things. So, um, I don't think they're going to get anything there. Uh, as far as 80% firearms, I think they're going to have a, that's another very difficult road to climb because, you know, how do you take something that's not a firearm, face it, it's not a firearm until it's complete, uh, you, you just have a chunk of metal. It, and you could regulate anything then. You could regulate a 2x4 from the lumber yard because it could be turned into a firearm somehow. Um or any chunk of metal could be a firearm if, if you go that an 80% receiver is a firearm. So uh, there's also the there's also the the problem that um, everybody understands, which is you know you have the right to build legal firearms. You have the right to make one. You have the right to create one. You have had that right since 1776 so there you go uh they're trying to regulate everything and and you know you see that especially with the masks and you know now it's the 
Delta variant, you know, this is the big thing. First of all, they know that most people who are vaccinated, the Delta variant's never going to bother them. What this is, is simply that Biden has screwed up the COVID thing. He accused Trump of that, and he probably got some political headway by doing it, but Biden is the liar. Biden is the incompetent. Biden is the one who, remember, as soon as, as soon as he took office, COVID wasn't a big deal anymore. And everybody relaxed the restrictions, the, the, uh, the, you know, the serum, the vaccination was rolled out, on and on and on. And the fact of the matter is, he has screwed that up because he just let, let the thing roll. He didn't put any emphasis behind it. He didn't do anything. And he thought he was just going to suck up credit for the previous administration's work. And it's turned to shit because he has not administered the program. As is his duty, he, you know, he didn't do his job. Because why? Because, frankly, you know it, I know it. Biden is a decrepit old man that can't do the job. And the Democrats know they're in super trouble. They know they're in super trouble because if Biden even survives his first term, they know he won't be in any kind of shape to run for a second term. They know that. They just look at the guy. He's been in he's been in office six months and the guy can't hold a cogent news conference. Uh, he can't talk to reporters without stumbling all over his words and forgetting things. And he, you know, he sounds like, like you know, all the people who are are in homes or assisted living or skilled nursing facilities. He sounds like that. And you know, face it, he's got one foot. <laughs> he's got one foot in the home and uh, another on a banana peel. I mean, he's he is ready to go there. So if you accept the premise. And, and really the reality that Biden is effectively toast, then you have to look at, well, who who else is out there? And obviously, if he does not survive his first term, it's obviously going to be Harris. And, you know, face it, Harris is a disaster at this point. She's, she's, becoming, she's becoming the black Hillary Clinton. Nobody likes her. They realize she's also an incompetent. She can't do her job. You know, this isn't just like she can't go around and play the race card and and get elected to one little post after another, you know, a district attorney and then an attorney general and then a a senator, you know, from a very, very left-leaning kind of BS state. When you're president as... Barack Obama found out playing the race card doesn't work very well. It doesn't work on the international stage. It doesn't work with foreign dignitaries and and heads of state. None of that stuff, the, the race card, all the stuff that he can get away with here doesn't work very well there. And it also doesn't work very well when you have to get concrete results. And, uh, you know, Harris she can't even play the race card very well, really, because she's so disliked. Um, so consequently, she's 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 done. So they got Biden, who's done. They have Harris, who's a disaster, and that's why the Democrats are panicking. 
they're also panicking because they know in 2022 um, they're they're probably going to take a beating they're going to take some sort of beating if especially in places where all of a sudden we now have laws in place that preclude the shenanigans that went on in 2020 that allowed them to steal an election and you know they stole the 2020 election simply because they wouldn't be fighting so hard against these laws i mean they've pulled they've pulled out all the stops i mean they and they've mobilized all of their allies scum like major league baseball uh which had which pulled their all-star game out of atlanta because atlanta has atlanta's part of georgia and georgia passed some voter id laws and also kind of cut back some of this business of uh um, you know, all this fraudulent voting, all this stuff that could be exploited. Uh, they're fighting hard against all that. Now, why would they do that? Well, the conclusion is obvious. The conclusion is very obvious. So, you know, unless they can figure out how to steal elections in 2022 and 2024, they're in real trouble, real trouble. That's, and that is a fact. So these next uh, next few years are going to be very exciting. Um, I tend to believe that the um, the Democrats will take a serious beating, as I said in 2022, and I think they're in very serious trouble for 2024. Uh, I don't think Biden will be able to run if he's even still alive. He six months in, he appears to be less capable than he was even when he was inaugurated so you kind of template that out in time and uh <laughs> i think uh about three years from now <laughs> things aren't going to be looking so good so there we there we have it all right some interesting stuff in gun media and gun culture uh one is i'm going to get to the uh, retro guns special issue of firearms news which is actually a very good if you're interested in guns from the kind of the 70s the 80s the early 90s um it's it's very cool it's a very cool issue uh, i don't really care for some of the authors i don't know them i don't know anything they just don't seem to write great articles but um you know it's it's definitely worth getting um you know the other the other thing is hand loader magazine and muzzle loader magazine are out there and i'll start with muzzle loader i'm not really a muzzle loader guy except for cap and ball pistols i don't have muzzle loading rifles um i'm i like them and i'm fascinated by them in many ways especially flintlocks i think flintlocks have this this really coolness about them uh the way they work you know the way they're primed just the the fact that they use a flint which is really a, a very very old a stone age technology you know it's think about think about uh, weapons that were in common use up until you know the 1860s really uh we're using some stone age technology that's that's pretty pretty cool to think about but muzzle loader magazine is probably the best resource for all this stuff and i really like it i mean um, the historical articles are fantastic um the advertisers which you can get you know you can find all things from the uh 
uh, flintlock era and caplock era, all the accessories for both shooting and also uh, kind of reenacting or, or living history is just fantastic. And I really enjoy the uh, the articles about some of the people who are who are involved in it. I think there's going to be a bit of a right now it's pretty much a niche, but I think there'll be kind of a renaissance in flintlocks. Um, I just think that they're very interesting guns and people are going to start liking them. And, and they've been virtually unattainable in quant quality uh, reproductions. Um, there have been some very cheap ones that don't work very well and that's, that leads to a lot of frustration. But I think there's also uh, um, some better stuff that's, that's out there and they're certainly great custom makers. And uh, so people who want to, you know, shoot recreationally, uh, target and reenacting or actually even go hunting with them, uh, there's, there's really some very nice pieces of equipment out there. So I like uh, Muzzle Loader magazine. I think it's just great. And I think it's just, if you're a firearms person at all, it's very, very interesting to read. The uh, next, next magazine on the Hit Parade is um you know hand loader is probably the best gun magazine going it it's the only one that's survived and has stayed relevant um the current issue has got 190 loads for the m1 garand now that is a keeper of an issue and they usually do that every issue kind of focuses on something different like you'll see 38 special target loads or you know and and they'll have a tremendous amount using a lot of different powders and a lot of different bullets for a certain caliber for a certain use and I really like that because some of those are definitely worth keeping so uh, being it is how I'm disorganized I never seem to have, <laughs> have them organized very well but I think you can actually even go back online and reference some of that stuff but definitely the one that's out there now 190 loads of the M1 Garand if you shoot a Garand and, and load for it that is a must-have issue that is a must-have. They're also, uh, you know, it's, again, just like muzzle loader, the people who tend to advertise in it advertise some equipment that you just don't normally see if you do an internet search. And there's some good precision equipment out there. This, um, uh, it's the Area 4190 Reloading Press, Precision Milled for Accuracy. I don't have one of these. I would like to have one. It's basically a turret press with about 10 stations, which, you know, turret presses are the most underrated thing ever. They're the most underrated thing ever. They're not as fast as a progressive press, but they're a lot more convenient than the single-stage press that, like, I've been using since I've started hand-loading. Uh, they're really good. You can put it in there, adjust the die, and then just kind of click it around. And this one's got so many stations, you could probably have at least two, maybe three calibers um, set up on a single turret, and you just click back and forth between the dies. It's pretty squared away. What I like about this one is the die stations are actually numbered. So if you do that, there's no chance of running your case up into the wrong die. <laughs> So, it's it's um, it's foolproof, but it's not idiot proof, if you know what I'm saying. So, uh, but it looks like a very, very well made piece of equipment, with um, 
you know, precision. It is precision made. You can just tell by the the level of machining in it. Um, I suppose time will tell, but usually you don't see something them getting excited over something unless it's a really good quality piece. And there are other manufacturers um, who advertise inside here for everything from bullets to you know powder to all kinds of uh, specialty hand loading tools which are just excellent just excellent so hand loader is definitely definitely one to keep an eye on all right then let's get to the most fun which is the retro gun special issue of firearms news and um, on the cover they have one of the most interesting guns the Bushmaster Arm Pistol, radical, revolutionary, and wretched, uh, and all that is true. the um, The original Bushmaster company uh, produced kind of a clunky, piston-driven 5.56 gun that I think it um, it had an AR kind of bolt. But um, the thing with it, thing with it was, it was piston-driven, and it was kind of the the um, receiver was very slab sided it was an ugly gun took took regular AR magazines and uh, the only reason it existed was because of the miss and disinformation on the AR-15 the SP-1 which was it's total unreliable it was that total unreliable Vietnam piece of shit that shot a weak cartridge and and uh, would let you down in a jam and every everything else all that crap well and and of course because it was direct gas impingement um you know the worst thing in the world the worst the worst possible crime a gun designer could do is design one of those this was some piston driven thing uh the guns turned out to be basically garbage um i've never met anybody who had one who kept it or liked it and I'm talking the standard rifle, not the uh, other ones. And they, they quickly passed into history. But one of the versions they made was the arm pistol, which is only interesting today because of the AR pistols that are out there on the market. And this one was kind of a, imagine a short barrel bullpup design without a shoulder stock or, or without a long enough stock to be a genuine bullpup. So... You know, and this was back in the day when not a lot of people did, even though, like today, you could you could register SBRs, and people really didn't do that very much. Um, I don't know why they just didn't. And so, um, anyway, this was this was a pistol, and therefore did not need to be registered as an SBR. I think it had some sort of very crude, you know, non-regulated, stamped, non-adjustable sights on it. You know. It's a, really ridiculous and i remember that uh, they were trying to sell this thing of well this you know if you were parachuting in and, and the uh the lz is hot you could you could shoot back while you're descending you know total fabrication and fantasy um it, it was almost impossible to use because you had to hold it like a pistol the action being a bullpup was behind that so it kind of tried to they tried to get it so it kind of fit in the crook of your arm but of course you couldn't you you couldn't use a sights then so you know it was very limited it was around for a little while then it vanished now they're collectors items you know um i don't know why that is a lot of times junky guns become collectors items so i um 
was very interested in that. That was a that was kind of a you know an interesting '80s thing, early '80s. That was a big thing, you know that that Bushmaster pistol better than the AR, you know, but it wasn't. It was it was it was pretty cruddy, and he and the rifle that it was derived from was pretty cruddy. And I think those are actually collectors' items too. They're they're ugly, clunky looking things, but uh, somebody must want them for something. So the Bushmaster arm pistol, but interesting to read an article about it because, you know, frankly, it's been long forgotten and justifiably so. So anyway, that's the that's kind of their uh, um, key, their banner headline, their their main article in this, and it, it dominates the front. Um, other things they talk about, and just kind of going down the deal, the Calico M900 and M951, 100 rounds of retro 9mm firepower. Okay, um, Calico guns are garbage. Okay, and it's not that they're, it's not that they're poorly made. It's it's really more that it's it's not a very functional design, and it's not made to military any kind of military specification as far as ruggedness and reliability go. Uh, if you look at the Calico, it was really designed that you could have a 9mm carbine and, and then they kind of derived the pistol from it, which was a joke, you know, a, a big clunky thing. And that had a 50 round magazine, I believe. But it was really designed so that you could have this 100 round um, magazine that you, you know, and so you could, you could just, you know, keep squeezing the trigger and go. Um, if my recollection was that uh, it was sometimes I don't want to I don't want to cast bad aspersions and say they were unreliable, but um, I'm not sure that the reliability was there that you could completely count on a hundred rounds going off without some sort of malfunction. There was no real immediate action that that could quickly get the thing back into action, and of course, reloading, putting another magazine in place getting rid of the empty magazine once you'd fired your hundred rounds and then putting another one in was was not a really comp it was not really a simple or intuitive um, action so you you sat there and you know it took you a little bit of time to do that all those things would mitigate it from any kind of military and even police use it just just not happening so it, it was just a high capacity ultra high capacity range toy and you know it's been in and out of business a couple times apparently they're still making them now for what reason i don't know i don't know why you'd want one but but they still make them and uh you know there there it is you know i suppose they're trying to get into this perceived market for pdws you know the same kind of thing that the uh um that fn is kind of into and and a few other things um, they're trying to get into that, but I don't think that they will. Uh, I just don't see it being anything more than a kind of a novelty design that's some people will think is cool and will want it, but I think most people will choose to pass. So that's the, the Calico M900 and M951 with its 100 rounds of retro 9mm firepower. <laughs> it's It's one of those guns that has no real... No real practical use other than it might be fun on a range and it, and it might be, have a wow factor, a cool factor to show people. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it, but it is a cool retro gun, and it did come out of that period where, you know, they were all trying to produce something. You know, a lot of different manufacturers tried to produce something. Um, on the same vein is the, and I think these things have been called the Cobra and S, I guess it's SWD, and it, they're all the semi-automatic copies of the Ingram Mac 10 and Mac 11 submachine guns. Uh, again, because people didn't really put the wire stocks on them and turn them into SBRs, you really got this big clunky pistol with a horrific trigger pull, uh, a long extended magazine, and very crude sights. And while people might like it the way it looks and the fact that you know it had an association with special operations and, and other things, and it was featured actually in the John Mc. Um, the John Wayne movie McHugh, you know, where John Wayne plays a retired police detective and, you know, when they kind of take his guns away and everything else, he goes and gets one of these things and he winds up uh, um, letting the bad guys have it with them. So, um, you know, it's it's actually featured in a, in a movie. I think that was like 70, 71, something like that. The, the best part of the movie to me was his green Trans Am. That was the best part. But anyway, that was just that was just John Wayne. And uh, but a lot of people like these pistols, that, and they've been in and out of production. A couple different companies over the years. Everybody who I've known who's ever had one, once the novelty wears off, they can't wait to get rid of it. And it's for the same reasons. Uh, for the same reasons of the Calico. Basically, yeah, it's a high cap pistol where you don't need that kind of capacity um, it's not that accurate it's doesn't have good sights and it doesn't have a good trigger pull and uh, some of them I think and I'm, I'm just kind of speaking from memory but some of them have had reliability issues so there you go <clears throat> not much to choose from there um, but it definitely looks cool I, I will give it that it looks cool and they've had real suppressors and dummy suppressors for it and, and everything else. And again, not a gun that you can shoot in any kind of traditional way and actually hit something with. So, uh, one of the, another interesting gun, before I go to the last one, the second to the last one is the Holloway Arms Hack 7 rifle. And I remember when those came out, they, they hyped them pretty hard. And it's it's essentially a very conventional um, piston-driven uh, kind of tilting bolt um, rifle, or maybe it's a rotating bolt. I guess it is a rotating bolt. Um, it's it's a nice rifle. I mean, um, I've only ever seen one. I think they only made 350 of them. Again, another arms venture where they were undercapitalized. Uh, at least they were successful enough to produce the rifles they were supposed to. A lot of these companies don't. Um, but, um, you know, they were undercapitalized. And at the time, there was a market, but the market wasn't like it is today. You introduce a military-style rifle today, and you have a lot of people who use them in competition, or they see what's happening in the streets of America, and they said, oh, maybe I do need one of these. Well, back in the 80s, that wasn't as great as it is now. So the the hack arms rifle, and it was it was kind of the guy who was who designed it. His name was Holloway, and he was one of these. He wasn't. That's back when they had the first kind of, um, and I don't mean to 
cast aspersions, but it was kind of the first of this militia movement. And he did it under the auspices of the Texas State Guard, which is not the National Guard. It's the... the you Each state has its own Army National Guard or Air Force National Guard, or I think they even have Naval Reserve. I don't think they have National Guard, but... You know, each state has its own National Guard. The National Guard troops who help out in the floods and all the rest of this. Well, below that is a... Many states have a volunteer organization called the State Guard, which are people who are just kind of on a list. And if, let's say, the National Guard has to go in Missouri. Let's say it goes to St. Louis because everybody's rioting and burning half the city down and everything else. Well, the State Guard could get mobilized to, like, protect government, state government buildings in places, other cities around, or, or something like that. They're kind of a guard duty, you know, force that can be brought up. And actually, some states used it when they were um, mobilizing their National Guard units for the War on Terror. You know, they put these people on orders, and they pay them, the State Guard people, and they can, they can do a lot of the tasks that, um, you know, the National Guard troops would have to do as far as, you know, on the National Guard bases, you know, as being like range control and the admin people and, and, and all the rest of this, you know, kind of the base operations um, or garrison, post-garrison operations type people. So they would, they would use them for that. They actually have been used recently. But it is a pretty archaic thing. But Holloway was doing this way back in the 80s. And he put it together as a military police state guard unit where, you know, they had their own trucks. And they painted them and, and identified them. They had their own uniforms. And, you know, they the, the deal was they had to buy all this stuff themselves. And, of course, no one's going to issue them <laughs> M16s or M14s or even M1s. Nobody's going to issue them weapons. So they had to provide their own. And uh, I think his business plan was essentially if, <clears throat> you know, this caught on and other states start doing it, and there are some of these units scattered around the country, um, they would have to procure arms too. And Holloway was, I guess he was a Vietnam veteran, kind of a 30 caliber guy. So, you know, 7.62 NATO was the... The, the caliber of the rifle, and I believe it fed, as a matter of fact, I'm looking here and it did, it fed from old AR-10 magazines, which back in the 80s were very, very plentiful and cheap. So you could, they were like a buck a piece. So he decided that he could make a rifle that fed from this commonly available at the time magazine and it would be in 7.62 NATO, the greatest gun caliber, greatest rifle cal military rifle caliber of all time. And, you know, these things would just fly off the shelves. Well, they, they didn't. And part of it was I don't know that they could actually ramp up production to actually make enough of these to, to really hit the market. And, you know, a lot of people, they, back then as well as now, you see something in a magazine or you see something in an internet ad and you might be intrigued, you might be interested, you might want it, but until you lay your hands on it, um, you're not going to buy it. There are a lot of people who just don't buy blindly like that. And uh, now I have to admit, for, for basically uh, um, common consumption here and, and total honesty, 
I've bought several times I've bought blind and most of the time I've been very happy as a matter of fact as I'm thinking all the times I've done it I think I've been very happy I don't think I've ever had a huge disappointment when I bought something just after seeing an ad and bought it I can't think of a time I that happened so but a lot of people especially back then weren't were not like me and they didn't want to take that risk so the hack 7 never got off the ground by all accounts it's a pretty good rifle it was a pretty good rifle I mean it got good write-ups back then not that you know write-ups are anything more than commercial <laughs> commercial uh, shilling which is what they are but um, you know it didn't it, it wasn't like 20 people wrote in saying I have one of these things and it, it jams all the time and it appeared to be very very good what it did not have in my opinion was the refinements you would expect a military rifle to have it didn't have a place to put a bayonet on um, I'm not sure about its its reliability seemed fine its long-term durability who knows you know who knows because even the people bought them I don't think shot thousands of rounds through them you know so it didn't go through the rigor and the discipline of military testing so it may have inherent problems that just have were never discovered is what I'm saying unlike every other military design which you know goes through military testing and all this sort of things they fire thousands of rounds through it and, and through all this experience they find things that need to be changed never really never really got beyond that so I'm, I'm thinking that you know had it had it uh, been marketed a little better and had it been a little more refined might have been might have been a pretty good choice um, you know the mini 14 you could you could argue up until its latest iterations was kind of the same thing you know you take a mil, uh, mini 14 from the the 80s and you know it's not a military weapon the mini 14 is not a military weapon it's 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 good in a lot of ways but you can see where it doesn't have a lot of the refinements and you know if, if they'd shot 200,000 rounds through it um, for testing maybe maybe they would have discovered some things I don't know but that's the Holloway hack 7 kind of wish in some ways kind of wish that it just stayed in there that would have been a good rifle it had it had really um, you know just to give it a postscript it had tough competition because in those days you could actually get HK 91s you could of course get Springfield Armory M1As and you could get from FN FN FALs plus you they also had the Imbel guns and a few other um, things coming in so in the 762 by 51 NATO rifle market there was some pretty stiff competition from very established very developed designs that were already there so it was a tough nut to crack had he done it the only way I think he could have survived if he had if he had done it in 556 he might have been able to to crack that market because a lot of people there was a lot of derog about the AR15 a lot of people derog that's a military term for derogatory information there was a lot of derog about that <coughs> and uh, so consequently um, you know he might have been able to, to punch into the 556 market or had he there were a couple of experimental rounds out there like 
5.566 millimeter, you know, which was basically a 5.56 next up, necked up to a 2.43 bullet. That might have been interesting, or maybe even if he'd brought it out in 2.43 Winchester and called it uh, <laughs> 6 by 51 NATO or something. Uh, might have might have been able to crack the market a little bit better but uh, uh, it did not happen and there are only 350 of them out there and i think they sell for three to five thousand dollars a copy these days and uh you know that's that's the way it is it's a rifle that never really went anywhere or did anything is now collectible and uh sought after okay the last one we have which is an interesting a very interesting um, derivative of the M1 carbine was the 5.7 Spitfire, designed by Melvin Johnson, the man of the the Johnson rifle fame. Now Johnson got famous, at least in the gun world, by um, introducing a the thing called the Johnson rifle, which was a 30-06 service rifle that was meant to replace the M1 Garand because it was quote so much better. I can tell you firsthand, I've handled Johnson rifles, and I think they're junky. Compared to a Garand, there is no comparison. A lot of Johnson rifle collectors and people who like them will, of course, vehemently disagree. But, you know, the Johnson rifle, it didn't have the chops. Um, the Army tested it. The Army or the Marines, I can't remember which. Somebody tested it. And they found that while it was a little more accurate than an M1, which is kind of subjective, depending on who is doing the firing and everything else, it was not as robust or reliable. So there you go. You know, um, it did actually did better than than most people would have thought. I think the Dutch bought a few, and the Marines used them for a short time. That was kind of at the beginning of the war, where you know any kind of modern weapons were being grabbed up. And especially after the Dutch were occupied by the Germans, it was obvious that we weren't, they weren't going to get delivered there, so the Marines grabbed them. Oh, by the way, I need to make a quick apology. Uh, if my voice sounds terrible, it's because my allergies are just kicking my butt today. So I'm having to uh, pause the recording every once in a while and do some coughing, sneezing, throat clearing, all that good stuff that, that happens until um, my allergy medicine kicks in. So I apologize for that up front. But getting back to the uh, to Melvin Johnson and his 22 Spitfire or 5.7 Spitfire, I've seen it called both. Uh, you know, it was a pretty cool cartridge, pretty cool design. Just the market wasn't there. And here's why it didn't work. Here's here's why it never took off. And this is not in the article, but this is the deal. Um, back then, people weren't buying military-style weapons for defense. They just weren't. So you had this guy trying to market an improved M1 carbine, which is really what it was. When it came, you know, to a PDW, the M1 carbine was really pretty light, handy, and, and you know, it was pretty difficult to improve upon. Uh, people didn't see any, any real value in this. If you wanted an M1 carbine for some sort of defense or something, that's what you bought. In 30 cal M1, you could get the ammo and, you know, pretty easy. And they were selling them surplus in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, it, it was not an impossible gun to get. And I think in, in the actually in the early 60s, that's when the, 
I think it was Ivor Johnson in, in Plainfield, or you know, there were actually commercial copies of them because they were they were you know they were in reasonable demand. So, but nobody was looking for an improved one, especially one that had a goofy wire stock. You know, kind of it had kind of the grease gun wire stock. Nobody was looking for that. Nobody was really looking for the 22 high velocity as a defense round that had always been kind of a varmint round and if you're going to hunt varmints you're not going to use something that looks like an m1 carbine you're just not so uh the whole thing fizzled i think they tried to interest the air force in it you know there's always been this thing with the air force and air forces around the world of you know how do you equip a pilot for when <laughs> their plane doesn't work anymore and they have to bail out okay or they crash landed somewhere um when the airplane doesn't work anymore what do you give the guy well for a long time before search and rescue combat search and rescue became what it is today at least in the large air forces uh you know you could you could be out there for a few days or, or for a while or you could be e and eing away from the enemy you know and, and all this at least that was the thought and so the thought was well you need some kind of a compact rifle and in fact, Armalite AR-7, you know, the 22 long rifle, they made a version of that for the Israeli Air Force. Um, it's a pretty cool little gun. It's got the got kind of a wire stock, similar to a grease gun. You know, it just kind of pulls out. Uh, it doesn't have the floating stock like you normally associate with an AR-7. And, um, you know, it came with uh, in the pistol grip, and it had like an FAL pistol grip that was hollow in the bottom and that came with a bunch of 22 rounds that were in a waterproof package kind of stuffed up there and and kept in there and uh you know a uh, couple of extra and i think it had 110 i think it was a yeah 10 round magazine two two that were attached to the butt and one that was in the gun so you could run around with a 22 survival rifle for whatever good that does you as a downed pilot that's always the part that's hard to figure out it's certainly not something that you're going to keep <laughs> all the enemy all the the enemy patrol at bay um you know you could you could forage with it uh there's some problems with that number one if if you're in the israeli air force any place your <laughs> airplane is forced down probably is does not have abundant small game being out in the desert so uh that's that's probably not not too useful the other thing is if you're out there foraging around uh, if there's any enemy looking for you, um, even a 22 could give your position away, and obviously they could just vector in on the noise while you're trying to shoot a squirrel or or whatever whatever lives out there that's that's edible. Um, it's it's really better just to pack, have a little kind of day pack looking thing with rations in it. And with CSAR being what it is, they usually are going to get you. One of two things is going to happen within 24 hours. They come get you or you're captured. So, you know, you're not going to be out there for these extended period of times like you like was possible probably in the 40s and uh, 50s and maybe even the early 60s. Uh, it's just, just not going to happen that way. So really, if you pack a lot of weapons in with the pilot, you're doing one of two things. They're either just going to get left behind and the enemy is going to grab them or the enemy is going to capture them from them and get them anyway so why give any weapon to your enemy even the small numbers and kind of goofy little things like that so uh you know i think they've just kind of settled on they went back to the world war ii model you kind of get a service automatic or a or a revolver um and that that's kind of what you have and so you have something 
but it's not necessarily you know there's there's no such thing that's going to cover all the potential circumstances but um so going back the the 22 spitfire they, they kind of try to get the air force interested in it on that no no bites there which is funny because later the air force bid on the ar-15 but you know you kind of look at the m1 carbine and m115 you kind of look at the ballistics of the 22 spitfire and the 556 and there's really no comparison there but it, it was a cool concept but it's one of those concepts that just is it economically feasible is it economically feasible and the answer is well it's not because the ammunition the proprietary ammunition is going to be so expensive that you're not just going to go out there and plink like crazy with it you know and you think of any proprietary cartridge uh that's that's one of the downsides of 50 a and e 460 smith and wesson 500 smith and wesson um what are the other ones 454 Casol. now these are also ultra powerful rounds but um you know they really uh are not suited for plinking because the rounds themselves are so expensive and it goes the auto mag rounds are the same thing you know we talked about those a couple podcasts ago so there there you are um probably too expensive ammo using a ballistic theory that really is still even contra a bit controversial to this day that is small caliber high velocity versus 30 caliber <laughs> low velocity um so there and and also just ammo ammo cost and availability and so that's the uh, that's the reason the 22 spitfire never never really caught on and and was never going to caught on catch on even though it was a very interesting a very very interesting uh, concept and you know might have caught on a little bit in something like the ruger mini 14 where it's a civilian gun and in countries where you can't own a military cartridge you know like you can own 9 by 21 in Italy because you can't own 9mm Luger, you know, because that's a police and military cartridge. You know, stuff like that. A rule beater to kind of get around legislation where you cannot own a, a military-style firearm. Hey, might have been might have been somewhat useful for that, but even that never materialized. Okay, let's go to the most... Uh, I say the most, but certainly the most favorite part of the podcast for me, which is questions and answers. We got a slew of them, so let's get down to it. Okay, here is our first question, and uh, this is already one that's got me stumped. <laughs> All right, it is, I have a Colt Model 1909 revolver. What is the bore diameter? I'm assuming that's groove diameter. 452 or 454? Okay. Colt 1909, one of the more rare U.S. military pistols, but it since it was kind of a transition in between uh, revolvers, it, they they had they bought about twenty thousand of these things. The army did, the army and marines, and I don't know if the navy used them, but the army and the marines had them. Colt new service, large frame in essentially what was a forty-five Colt cartridge that had a little bit bigger diameter rim, so that the extractor would uh, would get it out of there easily you know they ship these things off it to to kind of go back to a little bit of earlier information they spanish american war 38 long cold it does basically okay but it 
it clearly is lacking in stopping power, especially when you had um, some of the uh, uh, Moro Indian tribe members who were who were basically kind of drugged up, so they couldn't feel bullets hit them very much, and they would keep coming and they would chop. You could empty your revolver into them, and they would still have enough left to uh, to chop you up. So uh, they started reissuing 45 Colt revolvers to the people who were there um, simply to, to stop these kind of attacks. And the 45 Colt revolver did a much better job um, stopping. Therefore, you know, kind of makes you wonder about all these people who say big wars and everything else are equal. So anyway, uh, the big bore revolvers did well. Obviously, the Colt single action was an antiquated design. Something double action would be better. Uh, in 1907, 1908, you know, they're developing the 45 automatic, but that's a few years away. They know it's going to be a few years. So they go ahead and just buy 20,000 new service revolvers. <clears throat> they come up with the cartridge with bigger rim. And they were very happy with them. Very good guns, very happy with them. Quickly obsolete by the 1911 pistol. And got to remember, this is before the entry into World War One. So the question is, hey, um, was it 452 or 454? I have, here's the, uh, here's the honesty, I have never bore slugged one. I do own one, actually. I don't really shoot it much. It's one of those guns, it's rare and it's cool, but it's not really worth a lot because it really didn't do anything. It just kind of was in the inventory until enough 1911s were bought to move it out. And then it was reincarnated in 1917 for in 45 ACP with a different cylinder um, as the model 1917. And actually the barrel was a little more contoured and a few small changes. But basically the Colt 1917 is a new service in 45 ACP, uh, lightened up a little bit. So, but, but it really didn't do much, so it didn't have much effect on anybody. And of course, once the military was getting 1911s, they got rid of these as fast as they could. And they gave them to the postal department and and a few other things like that. So, you know, that's the guns usually saw some government service after that. I imagine that they were probably, if your law enforcement agency was was small and you had to buy revolvers on the cheap, you could probably get some of these from the government somehow. So they they kind of had that thing, but they were good. But for what they were, they were darn good revolvers, very solid, powerful, and everything else. But you know the um, the old thing was the old 45 Colt revolvers like the Peacemaker had a 454 diameter, and 452 is the one that was kind of standardized on a little bit later, and I believe these have a 452. So, um, but like always, you can always slug your own with one of those little kits. Doesn't cost they don't cost much, and and you can do it. Uh, if you're having accuracy problems, that's what I would do. Um, frankly, I don't really shoot mine for accuracy. I just kind of shoot it for fun. I just use regular 45 loads and, and have a good time with it. So there you go. Okay, what firearms do you carry or use as a traditionalist? Handguns and rifles. Well, I, I kind of define myself as a traditionalist. I, I don't really like... I, I don't always grab something because it's the newest and latest and greatest I, I just don't do that so I use a lot of older stuff I'll just go quickly here because I could I could bore people this could put this could really put people to sleep for rifles I uh, I do like lever guns and all that for modern 
rifles. Um, you know, I kind of in 7.62 NATO, I like the big three. You know, the M1A slash M14. I like the M1 Garand. I like, uh, well, the, the other two of the big three are the FN and the HK. I like all those. I like all those rifles. So it's, I guess it's a big four. Like those. Uh, for the medium or smaller bore rifles, or intermediate cartridge rifles, I guess. I really like the uh, earlier style ARs. They're lightweight. They're proportioned right. They have great iron sights. Um, the iron sights on an AR will never move. I mean, they they will never move on their own, and they're wonderful. So I really like those. Uh, for handguns, of course, I like the 1911. I like revolvers quite a bit. I don't really care for polymer-framed guns. Um, so that's that's about it. I mean, I that's that's kind of what I like to have and use. I mean, they're good, solid guns. Um, you know, and frankly, they're a big part of the market today. I mean, go into a gun shop and how many lever guns do you see? You, you see quite a few. You know, the cowboy action has kept it alive, but people like the lever gun. You know, Uberti has sold a ton of them over the last couple of decades, last probably four decades. They've sold a ton of those. They've also sold a ton. You know, you go in there and you find a lot of large bore single actions, um, you know, Colt single action clones. Um, you know, they, I mean, they still, 1911s and everything from the copies of the uh, 1911A1 service automatic up to target guns, they just fly off the shelves. Smith & Wesson makes a big living off of revolvers. Even other companies are coming in with revolvers now. They're not necessarily traditional, but I notice Kimber makes a really nice looking, very cool revolver. Ruger has always made good, great revolvers. And of course, the king is Smith & Wesson. And, you know, the old king, Colt, is coming back. And um, I don't think you can, even though it's been almost two years, you still can't find a new python in stock anywhere. And you certainly can't find an anaconda in stock anywhere. So, you know, of all the traditional guns, there's an extremely strong market for them. So I don't consider myself an outlier. I'm just kind of the, the person who I know what I like and I know what I want to use. And that's, that's basically it. Um, I'm sure that there are some new guns that I would be very impressed with. Uh, you know, a lot of times, though, I, I walk away and I'm kind of, for the price tag they want for something crafted from materials that I don't really uh, cherish or value, I see that as being kind of a ripoff. So there you go. Is ammo coming back? Yes, it is. The prices are coming down. There's going to be some of that older stock, though, that people paid crazy money for. And they're going to be trying to get $50 a box for, for Wolf. <laughs> but, you know, it's just not going to happen. After a while, it'll all, it'll all kind of reach equilibrium. How low it will go, I don't know. But I don't think we'll see 2019 prices again. Um, at least not for the short term. I think they will, they'll OPEC us. They'll cut back their production to keep the prices high. You mark my words on that. Mark my words. All right. Does the 5.7 by 28 have a future? Um, yes. <laughs> for the people who like it and want it, it'll have a future. As a gun that you shoot a lot, it won't. 
um, because I don't know that anybody really hand loads for it. And a lot of the guns that are there, you know, hand loading for a semi-automatic is always challenging. And I don't know that there's a lot of the technique and things have been developed to make this good. I don't know if there's good, you know, are there brass trimmers? How long does brass last? Has anybody even developed any loads for it? What are the best bullets to use? All of that, I think, still has to be discovered or expanded on. So uh, I think it might have a future. I think that I think once the hype kind of comes down and it's still kind of hypey, you know, it came. it was the big hype. It was the big news in 2019. Then COVID and the gun shortage hit, and it wasn't the new hotness anymore. But it's still it's still got a level of hotness that I think uh, is going to cool off. And it's you know it's going to be you go in there and you find it um, sitting on a gun shops are not going to sell as much of it as they think they are. I'll put it that way. Okay. Who was Mel Tappan, and is his book Survival Guns still relevant? And is he confused with John Taffin? Okay, hmm. First of all is Mel Tappan. Mel Tappan was an old guns and ammo guy, 70s, maybe 80s, part of the 80s anyway. Um, probably 60s, 70s, 80s. He had a column in the old Guns and Ammo magazine called Survival Guns. And this is when survivalism and, and what has become prepping and all that started out. And it first kind of started out as an excuse to buy cool guns. I mean, face it, when people talked about survivalism, the first thing they talked about is, well, you need all of this to defend yourself. You know, you need, and I think the conventional wisdom was, you know, you need a 308 or 762 by 51 NATO battle rifle, and, and you need you know, a zillion magazines, and you need a zillion rounds, and you need, everybody needs, you know, a, a rifle of their own, everybody needs a pistol of their own, and, all. and a, a great excuse to buy the guns, and families of guns, you need a shotgun for this, no, 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 on and on and on, and, and that's what his books basically are, and he was also 30 caliber, uh, big bore pistol caliber guy, so not surprising from that time era, so that's, that's who he was, you know, did they really talk about the nitty-gritty of, hey, you need to raise chickens, you need to have a place to go poop, you need, how do you do this, how do you do that, that a lot of prepping has, has become, and basically the guns are in the far background of, of all this. But he was a guy who basically said, hey, you know, if it all comes apart, you can, uh, um, you can be the guy, and you can have a lot of guns, and there you are. So that's who Mel Tappan was. John Tappan is a guy who came along later. He's more of a 80s, 90s, 2000s guy. Um, he's also a big bore magnum shooter. You know, knows everything there is to know about uh, uh, magnums. Really an excellent guy. Very well read. I think he's. I think he was a um, an educator. Very well read, writes very, very well. Kind of think of him as a very articulate um, version of Elmer Keith, you know, a guy who knew a lot, but but Taffin could really explain it. And his books are very, very good. So he's a different guy, big magnum handgun guy. So a uh, big bore pistol guy, especially revolvers. So not to confuse the two, not to confuse the two. Okay, what are the best shooting accessories that nobody mentions? 
Okay, you know, you could you could easily go down the list of of all kinds of things, and there are more gizmos and all kinds of stuff. Everything from fire simulators, you know, things that shoot a laser out, or um, you know, and 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 hidden electronic target, all kinds of marksmanship aids like that. But really, here's what I would say: some people really should look at. And that is, you need comfortable boots and good socks. Because when you're running around on a range and it's hot and you're going to be in your boots all day, you need good boots and good socks. And they need to be broken in. Or else you're going to be a pretty sorry state at the end of the day when you got blisters and, and hot spots all over your feet. So you need that. You also need comfortable clothing. And by comfortable clothing, I mean good clothing. I see too many people who want to run around in t-shirts and and shorts because it, you know they think it's going to be cooler but really a lot of times if you're going to spend a day out on the range you're going to do a lot of stuff um, you need a good comfortable long sleeve shirt you need good long pants you need good boots and and it can be lightweight material that breathes and is is uh, good stuff but you know you do need rugged kind of clothing you get down into prone and and everything else and uh, stuff that also protect you from bugs so you need that too so um it's it's nice to have it's nice to be out there in your tea and and your your swim trunks but it's actually better to be you know in a kind of protected thing that's and that's why you look at military uniforms even hot weather military uniforms um cover as much as you of as much of you as they can they cover as much as they can and there's a reason for that and when you're doing rough stuff you're out there shooting doing that kind of stuff it really pays off um, it's a good to have that barrier between you between your skin and all the other little rocks and everything else that are that are out there okay do, 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 do. let's go to our last question Oh, I'm sorry. One one other thing I forgot with that was also good hat and headgear. Um, there's nothing worse than having sweat pouring down all over your face. So you want a hat that's going to not only shade your head and like the tops of your ears and, and all that. And the ball cap, we all wear them, but that's not the best. Something more like a boonie cap is a lot better usually. Um, you want something that's going to shade you, something that's going to mop up the sweat. And something that doesn't have a brim so big that it interferes with you firing. So those are that's a that's the other part of that. It's good hat and headgear. Those are things nobody really mentions, but they're out there. Okay, last question. Biggest drawback to revolvers, and biggest drawback to semi-auto pistols. Uh, biggest drawback to revolvers is usually capacity, and they take a little bit more time to reload. Um, even the uh, even the full moon clip ones and they've, they've got those in different calibers now and things so uh, it used to be 45 was the was the the one that started it all but now I've seen them in 38 super and a few other things so um, anyway but to go there uh, usually just capacity and time to reload for revolvers for semi-automatic pistols it's magazines not only do you have to buy them and they can be frighteningly expensive and you know, when you're when you're talking forty, fifty bucks a piece, it's not like you just want to sling this thing out of your gun and let it hit the ground. And I've seen more malfunctions induced by magazines than anything else. That's what that's what trips up a semi-automatic is the magazine.
So I would say that those are the two biggest drawbacks. The nice part, it's also an advantage. What's the advantage of a revolver? Well, hey, you don't have to buy any magazines. <laughs> What's the advantage of the semi-automatic? Hey, you got more capacity and it reloads faster. So it's just the inverse of that would be the, uh, the drawbacks. But anyway, this is it for this edition 107 of Old School Guns. Remember, you can always submit a question by emailing it to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave it for us in the questions and comments section of Podbean, which is our carrier. And we see those, we get a little notification when those pop up. So that's a, that's a great way to do it. But anyhow, this is it for this edition of Old School Guns. This is Old School Guns, out.